Let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed, we rejoice that you were forever ours. Why? Because as we just sung earlier, it's because of your great compassion and your mercy seen in giving us your son to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Father, it's been a rough week for some. For others, even this afternoon, there's meetings or events occurring. And Father, help us to focus in on the text that you have for us. Thank you for your word that promises not to come back void. And so guide us as we go to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Nehemiah chapter 9, and if you've just joined us, we've been journeying through this book. Last week, we looked at chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, and today we're going to look at the latter part of 9, 16 to the end, <clears throat> which is, it consists of a prayer that's broken out in a revival among the people. Last week, we looked at this prayer, the first part of it, and it was celebrating God's character, who he is. And that will continue in the prayer, but the second half is more of confession and appealing to God's mercy, appealing to his character. As I was reading through this text and studying it, chapter 9, starting in verse 16, it, it reminded me of the phrase, you sound like a broken record. And the sad part is, there are many, maybe even in our congregation, that doesn't know what a record is. <laughs> I remember when CDs came out, and it was like, oh, this is awesome, it doesn't skip. You know, those old vinyl records, if they had a scratch, it would just play over and over, and that get stuck in a groove or in that scratch. And that's what we mean when we use that idiom, you sound like a broken record. It's, you go on and on, you say the same thing every time, Right? <clears throat> That sounds like Nehemiah 9, 16 through 37, as we're going to see. It sounds like a broken record, because in this prayer that's delivered among the people, there's a continual reminder, we have failed. We have failed as a people. We have blown it here. We did it again. And yet God is faithful. His character comes forth, as we're going to see. So, let's look at 9 of Chapter 9 of Nehemiah, starting in verse 16. But they, our ancestors, behaved presumptuously. It's the same term used, by the way, of the Egyptians earlier in verse 10. They rebelled and did not obey your commandments. Now, keep in mind, if you weren't here last week and you haven't had a chance to read Nehemiah 9 for devotions this morning, there's a rehearsal of God has provided. He made a covenant through Abraham. He delivered them from Egypt. And so there's all these things that God has done. And yet, it says, you rebelled. You bunch of louses, right? But they throw themselves in the midst. They refused to obey. They did not recall your miracles that you had performed among them. Instead, they rebelled and even appointed a leader to return to Egypt. You gotta be kidding no, but you are a God, now catch this, of forgiveness, merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and unfailing in your loyal love. You did not abandon them. Watch that phrase. We're going to see it several times. Even when they made a cast image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you from Egypt. Talk about chutzpah. Right? Here's Yahweh, and you, you take your gold that God allowed you to take and plunder from the Egyptians to make a, an idol that you're now going to worship and say, that's the one who delivered you. 
sin never makes sense. <clears throat> or when they committed atrocities, a blasphemous uh, acts, due to your great compassion, verse 19, you did not abandon them in the desert. Implication, we would have done it, right? I'm not putting up with this. No, not the Lord. It says, the pillar of cloud did not stop guiding them in the path under the pillar of fire at night. You imparted your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold manna from their mouths. That was the food that they sustained through the desert. You provided water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them. All 40, you were there. The whole time, even in the desert, they did not go wanting. Their clothes did not ever wear out, and their feet did not swell. Then the prayer goes on to talk about going to the land and how you gave that to them. And look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they grew disobedient and rebelled against you. They disregarded your law. They killed the prophets who had solemnly admonished them in order to cause them to return to you. They committed atrocities, again, these blasphemous acts. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their adversaries that oppressed them. In the same, in their distress, they called out to you. You heard them from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you provided them with the deliverers to rescue them from their adversaries. Verse 28, then when they were all rested again, they went back to doing evil again before you. They abandoned them to their enemies and they gained dominion over them. When they again cried out to you in your compassion, you heard from heaven. Hear this broken record? And on we go, right? Keeps going back and forth. They cry out, you deliver, verse 29, but you solemnly admonish them. So when they returned to your law, but they behaved presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. They sinned against your judgments, those by which an individual, if he obeys them, will live. They boldly turned to you. They rebelled. They did not obey. You prolonged your kindness with them for many years, and you solemnly admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Still, they paid no attention, so you delivered them into the hands of the resident peoples. However, due to your abundant mercy, you did not do away with them altogether. You did not abandon them for you are a merciful and compassionate God. There it is. Six times we see a cycle. In fact, if you're taking notes, I'll give you a, this is not in the notes, but six times we see this process of where the Israelites disobey, rebel, and six times the text gives us an aspect of God's character. I love it. So you see here, for instance, you see the first one. In fact, we'll walk through these, but you've rebelled. You, return, you want to return to Egypt. And what do we see? We see a God of forgiveness, mercy, and compassion. And again, this goes back and forth. Later, we'll see that God then pulls even, uh, it seems it intensifies the rebellion to the point where God has to spank them even harder. And we'll see that here as we move through these six references. So let's look at the text. The first of these, again, uh, that we see in the references to rebellion is found in verses 16 and 17. Here they wish to return to Egypt. The text tells us, you acted arrogantly, presumptuously. And again, it's the same phrase used in verse 10 of this prayer of the Egyptians. You were no different than them. And you want to go back? It reminds me of Numbers 14. Remember the whole plot to overthrow God? 
among the Israelites. They declare in Numbers 14, it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Let us return. There's so many problems with that. (laughs) I mean, look at 915. What did the Lord tell them? 915, look at this. It says, you told them to enter in order to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. It was promised to them. Why would you rebel? Why would you want to go back to Egypt? God made a promise with Abraham. We see in verses 8 and 9 of this text. And and he said it's for your descendants, which he highlights in verse 15. And yet, they want to overthrow God and the promises that he has given And what do we see God do? And this is, I think this is part of the amazing aspect of the prayer. It highlights who God is. He did not abandon them. Three times that phrase occurred in the text that I just read to you. God did not abandon them. God did not abandon them. And it's ironic, isn't it? God didn't abandon them, but the Israelites, they did. Whether it's the law that he gave, whether it's the prophets God gave, whether it's the land They abandon the Lord, and we see that here. Well, the Lord doesn't. And in verse 21, look at this, the text. It says, you imparted your good spirit on them. For 40 years, you sustained them. The Lord cared for them. I think the mention of 40 is to say he was there the whole time. In fact, it says the the clothes did not wear out. Talk about saving on clothing, right? I was reading this week, the average person, the average person, spends, no, $1,900 a year on clothing. And that's partly due to clothing doesn't last longer than three years normally, and people, after wearing clothing seven times, throws it out. Now, that's in American terms, I understand. But $1,900 a year per person, if you you multiply that times 40, you got $76,000 you just saved. That's a humdinger, right? And so here's the Lord providing. They don't need new clothes. And the, and the text tells us their feet did not swell. The Hebrew term is rather vague here. It probably means soggy or doughy. Uh, it's like saying my feet feel like lead. I can't move them. In other words, what it's saying here, I believe, is that the Lord sustains the elderly so they can keep up with the younger folk for 40 years they were able to do this track, right? This is what we need for a shoe company advertisement. I don't know. Yahweh's with you. 40 years, he sustains your feet. uh, And he he keeps your clothing from wearing out. Uh, They must not have been big on fashion, but oh well. Uh, Did I see you wear that yesterday? Yeah, uh, you did. Uh, 40 years, God is sustaining them. He's providing with this backdrop of these ungrateful lot you know God didn't bury them in the wilderness the second reference we see in verses 18 through 25 is this reference to the casting of an an, an idol the calf the text tells us they committed atrocities these blasphemous acts which is repeated in verse 26 the phrase is used of Manasseh in 2nd Kings Remember what Manasseh did? He offered his child on the altar, killed his son for Moloch, the god that he was worshiping. Great atrocities. And what do you see? Great, the text tells us, great compassion. 
Look at this. It says in, in verse 25, they captured fortified cities. They did all this. You gave them goodness. They committed this. In verse 27, you displayed abundant, here it is, compassion. That term compassion occurs six times in this chapter. There is no other chapter in the entire Old Testament that mentions that word that frequently. In fact, apart from the book of Psalms, Nehemiah mentions the word compassion more than any other Old Testament book. Wow. Think about this. This is a group who in all practical purposes are slaves to the Persian Empire. They're surrounded by enemies, and yet they focus on the compassion of God, which is fantastic. But his understanding of who he is, that, that word means mercy, pity, forgiveness. The first time it occurs is in is Exodus 33, when the Lord says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before your face, and I will proclaim the Lord by name before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I wish to show compassion. In other words, you want to know who the Lord is, who Yahweh is? It's one of compassion. That's who he is. It, it, it's a fundamental element. Often we refer to the Lord's loyal love, which we read in Psalm 106 earlier in the service. That term expresses the fundamental goodness of God. This term, it talks about the favor of God and where he shows pity on the sinner and on those who are afflicted. Listen to Isaiah 54. For a short time, I abandon you. Now, time and time again, the text tells us God does not abandon them. But in one sense, he allows them to go into exile, knowing full well he's gonna bring them back. And Isaiah says, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In a burst of anger, I rejected you momentarily. But with lasting devotion, I will have compassion on you. And so what does he do? Time and time again, he forgives and shows grace. And, and that's what this prayer is rehearsing. In this broken record, we see God's character coming through loud and clear. I love the lyrics to the old hymn, O oh, worship the King, all glorious above. O oh, gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendid, splendor and girded with praise. So you see this great God. And then verse, verse, I think it's verse three. Final children of dust and feeble as frail. If you do, in you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, your compassions, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. That's our God. And the Israelites, in this revival that has broken out, hearing the word, coming in confession, and breaking out in worship to God, recognizing his character, they're also recognizing they as a people and their shortcomings. They're not done. Those are the first three. There's a fourth reference to disobedience in verses 26 and 27. And it's like the heat's being turned up. This time, they kill God's prophets. This God counteracts this with compassion who rescues them. But twice in this chapter, in this prayer, there's God sending his prophets to them, and yet they reject it. And the spirit moving through the prophets. 
And this is the first time God brings adversaries to them and disciplines them. What's wrong? Oh, oh, I don't know. Oh, move on. So that's the third reference. The fourth reference, return to doing evil. He's a God of compassion who cares. The fourth is of Israel's disobedience and God's compassion. And then finally, the sixth, we see a God who is ignored by his people. Verse 31, I love the verse. It says, however, due to your abundant mercy, you did not do away with them all together. You did not abandon them. You are a merciful and compassionate God. So we look at these six sequences, six events that occur, and you say, okay, what's going on here? So let me give you some things to write down if you're taking notes. First of all, in each of these sections, as we've seen, it focuses on the characteristic of God. You alone are God, the text tells us time and time again. You are the sovereign one who keeps your covenant. Secondly, and I now see why everyone's freaking out, so there we are. Oh, the birds of the sky do exalt your name, right? Bird or bat? I don't know which. Bat. Oh, even better. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Where do we go? Yes. <laughs> I didn't even put the Batman sign up. And here we are. God is merciful and gracious and keeps us humble, right? So we go to the text. If you can focus, you alone are Lord. Secondly, there's a clear understanding of God's grace and mercy in the life of Israel. Time, again, time and time again. Exodus 34, Moses, after he'd cut the two tablets a second time, God did, and gives it to Moses. Listen to what the Lord says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions. But he will punish, the text goes, for those who sin, for their children's children and to the third and fourth generation. And so as these attributes of God are, are peppered throughout chapter nine, we're, time and time again, the focus is that it's great. Verse 17, great love. Verses 19 and 27, great compassion. Verse 31, great mercy. And we see all of that there in the text. The third thing we see as we look at these six references is don't miss it, is the importance of the land. That's key. It was the promise given to Abraham that is seen to be brought to fruition here in the text. It ties us back to God's promise. And by the way, we're gonna see this when we get to the next verses. It sets us up for the latter part of the prayer. What are these people longing for? <laughs> for Persia, is, is despite how nice they have been, to throw the yoke off and to replenish the earth in the land that God has promised to them. That's what they long for. This is what they're desiring, to, to fulfill, to see the fulfillment of the covenant. And in the process, we see that God's judgment is just. We don't serve an evil God. We serve a God who is very gracious. You should see that in this text. I mean, think about Israel. They're without excuse. Verse seven or 16, they did not obey the commandments. 
Verse 20, they refused to listen to the spirit that had been given. Verse 26, they disregarded the law. Verse 29, they did not obey the commands. And verse 30, they ignored the prophets. You know, it's easy in reading Nehemiah 9 to say, what a bunch of losers, a louses. I mean, how can you be so ungrateful? And yet, careful, right? As I look at the mirror, I say, who am I? <laughs> I have the, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit as a believer. I have both the Old and the New Testament, right, that's been set before. And 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, so that I might be perfect in every good work. And yet, I, I still find myself confessing those sins that, you know, I thought I slayed that, and here it is again. And so it's easy to condemn the Israelites and realize, wait a minute, we need to be careful too. And that's part of the lesson I think that we see here in Nehemiah 9. Another point that is being made here that is God listens to his people. Do you see how many times it says he heard their cry? And, and remember, they didn't deserve anything for him to hear their cry, but he heard it. And that's so key here in this text as you look at this. And finally, the endless cycle shows us. If you look at this pattern that we see, there's a problem. And that is it cannot be fixed, humanly speaking. The law, the Mosaic law, never meant to save. It meant to show you needed a savior. And there's a solution, which we will get to here in a little bit. But that is Jesus Christ. Because this pattern Nehemiah is trying to show, the book of Nehemiah as a whole is trying to show, they can't do this on their own. There needs to be a solution apart from them. And I would argue that is the cross. Well, let's go back to the text, verse 32, with bat and all, and let's read. So now our God, the great, powerful, awesome God who keeps covenant fidelity. Remember, they've just done this laundry list through six times and then they give these attributes. Do not regard as inconsequential all the hardship that has befallen us, our kings, our leaders, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria unto this very day. Why did they go to Assyria? Because that's the first exile. Syrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians, the Medo-Persians, right? They go, since the time of the Assyrians, you are righteous. Whew. That was said in verse 8 with Abraham. Not of Abraham in Nehemiah 9, but God, you are righteous. And it's repeated here. It bookends this whole thing. Why? Because we as a people are not righteous. That's, that's the whole point of Nehemiah 9. We've not been faithful like Abraham was faithful. In fact, it says in verse 33, you have acted faithfully. We who have been in the wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors have not kept your law. They have not paid attention to your commandments, your testimonies, which have solemnly, they have solemnly abandoned. Even when they were in the kingdom and benefiting from your incredible goodness that you had lavished on them, it says that they turned to evil. Verse 36, so today we are slaves. You go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're in Jerusalem, you've built a wall. What do you mean you're slaves? It's not like the Egyptian time frame. Ultimately, they're still slaves. That's what the text says. In the very land you gave to our ancestors to eat its fruit and to enjoy its good things, we are slaves. 
Its abundant produce is for the kings of Persia. You have placed over us due to our sins. Notice, by the way, the pronouns. Our sins, not their sins. They, they rule over our bodies and our animals as they see fit. And we are in, don't miss this, great distress. That's a phrase that was used time and time again. In th- chapter 9 in rehearsing, they were in great distress. They were in great distress. What are they wanting? God rescue us. Deliver us like you did of old. The promise you made to Abraham, we, we claim it. And this is what we see happening here. This is in verse 31, and verse 32, excuse me, is the only petition in the entire prayer. It's the only thing they ask. And notice in verse 32, the pronouns are changed. It says, our God. You who are the great one, do not regard our hardship that has befallen us. Take notice, as you did of old, the suffering that we are under Again, it fuels, one scholar writes, this fuels the expectation that God will show benevolence to the current generation as he has done so in the past. They're longing for God to deliver. Isaiah 41, you, my servant Israel, Jacob, whom I've chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I'm bringing back from the earth's extremities and have summoned from the remote regions, I told you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not rejected you. This is what they're claiming. Oh Lord, show mercy on us as you have in the past. Verses 32 and 33, there are no excuses, is there? <laughs> there, there are no blame shifting. It says, we are responsible. We have not been faithful like our father Abraham was faithful. We are not righteous as you are righteous. One of the questions that leads into this, and as we saw earlier last week in verse two, is that they pray for the sins of their forefathers. And what do you do with that? (laughs) We know that individuals are held responsible for their own sins. Deuteronomy 24, Ezekiel 18 is very clear that we, we're not responsible for the sins of our fathers, our forefathers. And so what is going on here? How do we rationalize Nehemiah 9, and it's seen also in Daniel 9? They're familiar texts that are used in arguments today about confessing sins of our forefathers. Well, let me just stop for a minute and give you a few things to consider. First of all, the past failures of the nation definitely needed to be addressed because it had spilled over into the current generation. That's part of the problem here. And and there is a call to renounce. We we don't want to do the things like our ancestors did in killing the prophets, etc. And and so there is a call to this generation at the time of Nehemiah that we need to walk in holiness unlike what has been transpiring but there's something on a, on a much grander level here, though, that we cannot miss. It's all tied to the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12. We looked at that last week, where God promised to Abram, I'm going to give you a land, your descendants are going to inherit, they're going to be great, and you'll be a blessing to the earth. It, it's all tied, collectively they are one. That's why we started with Abraham in this prayer. They are part of that Abrahamic covenant. And collectively, they function again as one. We're under the new covenant. The new covenant has no curse since Christ took the curse, uh, the law for us. And because it is a better covenant, according to Hebrews, 
Hence, we have no covenantal requirement on, on bearing as the forefathers sin that goes before us. It's unique. I wrote here in the notes, Nehemiah has been applied to the argument that we, our country, must confess our sins of slavery. Well, renouncing sins of the past is important. We need to be, certainly we need to be reminded of the value of life, that we need to be colorblind. But as noted above here in Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah is addressing specifically the Israelites and the relationship to the Lord, I would argue, under the Abrahamic covenant. Again, you've got to take into account not only Ezekiel 18 and Deuteronomy 24, but James 1, 1 John 1, that we are to confess our sin. And never do I see in the New Testament confessing the sin that my grandfather did. And I think we need to be careful as well utilizing Nehemiah 9, as I hear some do in certain circles for argumentation's sake, because... The contemporaries of Ezra and Nehemiah did not benefit from their ancestors' sins. They actually were harmed by them. So confessing the sin is a sin that has weighed heavily upon them. The book of Romans clearly argues that all groups, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile, we are all guilty of sin. And we are held personally responsible for a holy God for our own sin, not for the sins of others, I would argue, including our ancestors. So I don't believe Nehemiah 9 can be applied today. I think it is dealing with a specific situation under the light of, under the auspices of the Abrahamic covenant that's tied there. But certainly principles can be brought forth, can't it? The call to renounce sin of those who've gone before us and not to follow, and not to follow in the footsteps of our grandparents and our great-grandparents, etc., Thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit and the transformation of life, right? You, you see sins of your grandparents or your great-grandparents. You say, Lord, help me to break that. I don't want that in my life and, and in my family's life. Verse 33 makes that, again, that profound statement. It says to the Lord, you are righteous. <laughs> One commentator writes, it's the highest form of worship in the entire prayer. It recognizes that, God, you are above all, and we are not righteous. In fact, we have failed time and time again, the text tells us. And so verses 34 and 35 is this crying out to God, a recognition that not only have we been ungrateful, Lord, but we've refused to serve you. And, and so that, that backdrop of God's mercy, his compassion, his kindness is seen with a group of people who are intentional sinners deserving of being punished. You see the ironies in the text, verses 36 and 37, as the prayer closes? Because the forefathers did not serve the Lord, they will serve foreign powers. God gave the land to the ancestors, now he's given it to those who rule over them. The abundance that was to be theirs and, and, and given to them is now given first and foremost to the rulers. Kidner in his commentary writes, this prayer is not breathing out rebellion nor complaining of injustice, but neither is it pretending that to serve and enrich a foreign regime is what was promised to Abraham and his seed. 
The great distress which ends the prayer is a sign of life and a vision that has not been tamely given up. <laughs> this thing has been lingering for some time here in the life of the Israelites. Well, Hophetitz, I'm not. you told me I'm not under the Abrahamic covenant. I don't live in Jerusalem. I'm not for 440 BC. So what do I do with this? Well, let me give you three things to hang on your beak this morning. The first of these is that the cycle of failure that you see in Nehemiah 9 and in the life of Israel, I don't know about you, but it gives great hope, does it not? <laughs> Knowing this is the God that we serve. Through the work of Christ, we have confidence and assurance that we have forgiveness through repentance of sins. Again, you come to the cycle that you see. How is it broken? It's found solely in Jesus Christ. There's your solution. There's how it's accomplished. It's the righteousness in him. And think about it. Throughout history, men and women have sought to justify themselves before God. When you understand who God is, you're going to respond the same as Nehemiah 9. Lord, I am a louse. Or Peter, when he sees Jesus for who he really is, he says, depart from me. Or Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips, as he sees the glory of the Lord in the temple. Through the work of Christ, again, we have confidence and assurance. And throughout history, this idea of trying to appease the Lord and justify ourselves, it doesn't work. Ask the Pharisees. That was that religious sect at the time of Jesus. I mean, they had it all together. 600 and some oral laws that created offense around the written law. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your righteousness not, does not exceed the Pharisees, you're not going to taste of heaven. How? How can that be? Well, it's found in 2 Corinthians 5. God made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. How did he do that? Jesus paid the price on the cross. He died for our sin. So that in him, we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's how this cycle is broken. That's how we, we get rid of the record and put a CD in, right? Or listen to Spotify. Get rid of the record altogether. Because the Lord, he, he's dealt with this problem through Christ. This is where the righteousness comes. Think about this. After the fall of Adam and prior to the cross, humanity, men and women, could not but sin. Oh, they might get it together, the Israelites, for a while, but they'll go right back to it. Even today, a person who does not follow Christ cannot but sin. Why? Because you're born a sinner. You're, you're enslaved to sin. As a follower of Jesus, however, you can not sin because of the power of the Holy Spirit which dwells within you. Romans 5, consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through the one transgression, that's Adam. That's why that little baby that's born, they're born a sinner. It's the seed of Adam that's come down. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were con constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, that's Christ, we might be righteous. Wow. That's what the Lord's done. You read Nehemiah 9, it's a bit of a downer. Yeah, God's great, love it, he's compassionate. But at the same time, you're like, huh, can they ever break this yoke? Yes. We can through Christ. And now that should make your socks roll up and down. 
That should make any bat go batty, right? Uh, wherever that bat's at, there it is, right? And that's why Paul later will state in Romans 6, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. It says, for sin will have no mastery over you because you are no, under, no longer under the law, but under grace. The pattern seen in Nehemiah can only be extinguished through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Think about it. The one who is called righteous gives us the opportunity to share in his righteousness. <laughs> wow. That's our God. He didn't take out a stick and zap them, say, I'm done with the Israelites. No, he, he did not abandon them. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can testify, he did not abandon me. And some of our testimonies, you would wonder, why did God spare Hophidus, but God did. Or why did he spare me? It's because of God's grace. Second Corinthians 5, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. And this leads us to the second point. I don't care what the situation is, God is there to intervene. Oppressed, oh, the Lord can rescue and judge. Abandoned, the Lord can comfort and provide companionship. Overwhelmed, the Lord can provide mercy and compassion. Poor and needy, the Lord can provide and sustain. Sense of failure, guilt, the Lord can forgive and restore. Hopelessness, uh, the Lord can provide hope and encouragement. Think about it. If there were no times of misery or sin, I would argue there would be no manifestation of God's character it's in the difficult waters that we really see who God is, don't we? Understand this one who reigns over all. Jerry Bridges writes, nothing can be more consoling to the man or woman of God than that the conviction that the Lord who made the world governs the world. And that every event, great, small, prosperous, adversity, whatever the situation, it says is under the absolute disposal of God who doth all things well and who regulates all things for the good of his people. That's our Lord. <laughs> you think, well, no, 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 Hoffman, it's you don't know my story this morning. <laughs> I, I have wandered so far from the Lord. There's no way. Yeah, I came to church, but it's a pretty hopeless state. Look at the Israelites. <laughs> what nation on this earth did the Lord give his law, make a covenant, go before and lead? They experienced the provisions time and time again. They saw his hand of protection. They needed his forgiveness repeatedly. And yet, what does the Lord do? He loves them. That's the God we serve. A compassionate, gracious, good God. I love verse 31. He did not do away with them. I don't think there's a parent who would have tolerated such behavior from a child on an ongoing basis on this globe. There's no country that would permit such actions from a citizen. There's no, certainly no employer who would condone such a performance from an employee. Such grace, such compassion can only be found in the perfect being, the Lord God Almighty. If you're still having a hard time wrapping your brain around this concept that God can forgive and love, then look to the cross. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the minister from London in the 1800s, makes this profound statement. We must never think that our Lord Jesus died to make God merciful. On the contrary, the death of the Lord Jesus is the result of the mercy of God. 
That's our God. And I look at Nehemiah 9, this sorry lot, and I go, no, we're no different. But God has intervened with his son, Jesus Christ, who has allowed us to be called righteous. And he forgives and he shows compassion. And there's one other great truth in Nehemiah 9. Don't miss it. And that is the Lord fulfills his promises. His words are true and his instructions are trustworthy. I love Psalm 119, verse 41. May I experience your loyal love, O Lord. By the way, that, that's a loaded term in the Hebrew. Doctoral dissertations have been written on that term. It's chesed. It, it's a covenantal love. It's, it's, it's one that you've kept your promise. You've stood by it just as you did Abraham. Oh Lord, and your deliverance as you promised. Then I will have a reply for the one who insults me. For I trust in your word. I will lift my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Remember your word to your servant. For you have given me hope. Our God, verse 32, look at it again. Our God is powerful. He's great. He's awesome. He keeps his covenant. This is the God we serve. So, we're not left to guessing or wondering or confined to some fantasy. God has clearly laid out his plan for us in his word. Nor are we left doubting the outcome. The Lord of the universe stands behind his word and has demonstrated time and time again his ability to fulfill the promises he has made to his people and finally, we're not left questioning the value or benefit. The Lord is an all-loving God who seeks to bless us beyond measure for his glory. Nehemiah 9, it's a broken record. <laughs> but along came Christ, who, who fixed all of that, provides a solution. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you're trapped, and you know you are. You keep wallowing back to the sin. Yield your life to him. Perhaps you've gotten back into that pattern. And like Paul in Romans 7, you keep saying, I, I keep doing the things I don't want to do and I, I'm struggling here. The solution's found in Romans 8. And that's looking to the Lord and the power of the Spirit to move into your life to make some transformation. And then finally, cling to the promises of God. Nehemiah 9 Right? Time and time again, it states the Lord did not abandon. He kept the word and the land that he had promised to Abraham will be fulfilled. God keeps his word. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Reading Nehemiah 9 and this rehearsal of the Israelites in one way seems so removed from us living in 2022 in Westfield, Indiana, and yet in another way, we can resonate loud and clear. It's a reminder that we are helpless without your intervention, and you and your great compassion and mercy saw fit to give us your son. As this prayer started, we pray, may you be blessed, O Lord our God, from age to age. May your glorious name be blessed. May it be lifted up above all blessing and praise. Why? Because you are God. You are our God. And we thank you and we praise you. In 